Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. In his article for the summer 2006 edition of Cato's Regulation Magazine, Harvard University professor of economics Edward Glazier argued that decisions made on behalf of the public will be less accurate and less likely to produce beneficial results than private decision-making. He makes the case against hard and soft paternalism once again in today's podcast. How does soft paternalism differ from traditional hard paternalism? The major distinction between soft paternalism and hard paternalism is that soft paternalism doesn't actually involve restrictions on people's choices. Instead of a traditional hard paternalistic policy like a ban on smoking, for example, in the workplace, or a tax on cigarettes, soft paternalism attempts to move people's decisions using non-forceful means. So, for example, warning labels on cigarettes would be an example of soft paternalism. One thing that's particularly favored by soft paternalists is just changing the default. So, let's say the default within a company is not to put your money in a 401k. The default might be putting your money in a 401k, which the reasoning goes uh, doesn't restrict anyone's freedom, but rather still induces them to do what the soft paternalists think is the right thing. There's a belief among some scholars, Richard Taylor and Cass Sunstein of the University of Chicago, for example, that soft paternalism is completely innocuous and benign. You would disagree? I think it depends on the context. One of the reasons why this debate is muddied is that frequently Sunstein and Taylor discuss the use of soft paternalism in the workforce. So private firms choosing without any government intervention to change the default on retirement plans or, to take an even more trivial example, to serve fruit ahead of ice cream in the corporate cafeteria. I don't think there's any problem with companies freely choosing to do whatever policies they want. After all, companies have done all sorts of crazy things with workers from time immemorial. And in fact, I think the libertarian view is that those companies, you know, that has nothing to do with sort of traditional uh, worries about governmental paternalism. On the other hand, when soft paternalism makes its way into the government sector, I think there are a lot of reasons to be potentially worried about it. It's far from innocuous, and it's far from something that a libertarian would necessarily sign on to. So let me just give you a couple of reasons why I think we should be wary of the push towards soft paternalism when it's applied by government. So reason number one is that governments make mistakes just like people do, and I imagine we'll get to this later. But the same sense in which hard paternalism can force people to do the wrong thing is true of soft paternalism. And you don't get rid of governmental errors just because you have soft paternalism. Although that argument does suggest very clearly that soft paternalism may be less dangerous than hard paternalism. A second argument against soft paternalism, which actually suggests that soft paternalism is actually worse than hard paternalism, is that certain types of soft paternalism, like warning labels on cigarette boxes, are taxes without revenue. They make things less comfortable for those people who want to smoke, but there isn't the offsetting tax revenue that would come from a traditional hard paternalistic tax. So you've villainized ice cream, you make everyone who likes a bowl of Rocky Road feel bad about themselves, you've reduced the quality of their experience, but at the same time you haven't raised any revenue from it. A third argument against this, and I've got about eight in the regulation article, a third argument against it is that there are many reasons to think that soft paternalism will be less easy to check than hard paternalism, just because it's so much more amorphous, it's so much harder to define. A fourth argument is that encouraging government to be in the business of changing people's minds strikes me as being an enormously dangerous thing. The last thing you want to do is sort of encourage the government to go out and try and proselytize. They're going to do it anyway. And just to give you an example, 
it's very hard to distinguish between soft paternalism arguments which seem benign and ones which just end up being self-serving for the government in power. So take, for example, the attempt to publicize No Child Left Behind. This ended up in a publicity program that was mostly about how great Ron Brown and President Bush were. Now, I have no problems with either Ron Brown or President Bush, but it just shows the extent to which soft paternalism gets muted into something that ends up being a self-serving act for government. I think the last thing just emphasizes soft paternalism often just paves the way for hard paternalism. Cigarettes started out with soft paternalism, a seemingly benign warning label on the package of cigarettes, allegedly just to provide information to consumers. It ended up building so much support for hard paternalism, so much antipathy towards cigarettes and towards smokers, that now we have rampant hard paternalism throughout the U.S. So I think there are many reasons to think that soft paternalism isn't some benign fix where we can all hug each other and think that paternalism has suddenly become good. In your article for Regulation, you point out several reasons why private decisions are more accurate than public decisions. So public decision-making is then more likely to be erroneous than the kinds of choices individuals would make for themselves? The heart of my thinking on this is fueled by a recognition that human beings are highly imperfect actors. And I think that there was an older tradition in economics that tended to put too much faith in people's decision-making, too much faith in markets, too much faith in the perfection of our minds. Psychology has pretty much shattered that consensus. It's sort of impossible to hold the view that human beings never make mistakes or don't screw up. But I tend to think that recognizing the frailty of human reasoning should make us more wary of government intervention, not less. All of the things that tend to check human error in private decisions, repetition, the simplicity of decisions, strong incentives to get it right, are not there when we cast our balance. So just to take a, a trivial example, if I buy shaving cream and it's a lousy shaving cream, I find out pretty quickly I can change it. I have every incentive to buy the right shaving cream. In the voting booth, it's very complicated. You actually have no incentives to get it right because your vote is trivially important. You have very interested actors who exist to try and persuade you to do the wrong thing. And I think the evidence is people have done horrendously stupid things in political contexts. And I'm not talking necessarily about government actors, but I'm talking about voters supporting absolutely crazy things. So take, for example, the Weimar Republic, where an overwhelming majority of citizens supported either communism or Nazism. Both courses would have been absolutely catastrophic for Germany. One of them was. Over and over again, we see voters get rampantly excited when their country decides to go to war, when almost surely in most of the cases, the appropriate response to your country declaring war is to be absolutely miserable. The sense in which the public government is somehow or other wiser or better just runs completely counter to human history and runs completely counter to what I think are the basics of the economic theory that suggests that simplicity and good incentives will serve to check human frailty, which certainly pushes in the direction of private decision-making. But as John Cassidy writes in the new issue of The New Yorker, there's some evidence from the field of neuroeconomics that human psychology often leads people to act contrary to their best interests. For example, what explains overwhelming loss aversion when individuals are presented with even chances of winning or losing? Or as Cassidy puts it, why are we so averse to losses, even at the expense of gains? Well, for sure. Human beings do all sorts of foolish things. I do so on a regular basis. But the great errors have not been private, they're public. It's one thing for me to gamble foolishly or to be excessively risk-averse in terms of my decision-making. Does it cost me some? For sure. Okay. But taking the other side and thinking that governments should make more decisions completely eliminates the fact that people are even more ridiculous when they're making decisions in terms of electing governments, right? 
all the private errors in the world didn't lead towards the disastrous election of the Nazi regime, uh, which was disastrous not only for the victims of the regime, but also for the people who voted for it. The whole error of this is that the psychologists are dead right that economists have for too long ignored the errors in human decision-making. But the economists are also right. The fundamental insight of the wealth of nations is the interests of the government and the interests of the people are not perfectly aligned. That was Smith's great idea that was founded in the wisdom of the Scottish Enlightenment. That is the critical element that must be brought to any discussion of neuroeconomics or paternalism or anything to do with psychology. And it's, it's a point that many psychologists just don't seem to be infused with. They somehow or other think that because they know how to make people's decisions better, that trusting to the government will make sure that those decisions are better. I think the broad path of history tends to suggest that when the scope of government activity increases, we should be quite wary because the government is a highly imperfect actor and surely, on average, far more damaging than private decision-making, no matter how flawed. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.